This Spotlight episode of the Security Ledger podcast was brought to you by Team Kumri. With visibility into all the components behind online crime campaigns, Team Kumri is a leader in threat intelligence and adversary infrastructure mapping. Its pure signal intelligence powers security vendors and Fortune 100 security teams. Team Kumri also provides no-cost services to network operators, more than 130 CSERT teams, and hosting providers around the world. For more information, you can visit them at Team Kumri, that's C-Y-M-R-U dot com, or follow them at Twitter at Team Kumri. Hello and welcome to a Spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast... Where most problems happen in the decision-making tree is under duress, right? So if you're not clear-headed, you can make bad decisions. And I would argue without context, you couldn't possibly be clear-headed. You may be calm, but you don't have context, so there is that fog. Cyber threat intelligence is a phrase that refers to data compiled on the activities, tools, and capabilities of malicious cyber actors, and it's a big business. By one estimate, the global threat intelligence market was valued at $4.24 billion in 2022, and it's projected to grow to more than $18 billion by 2030. Many security teams now consume threat intelligence, but making it actionable is another matter. That's because knowing that a ransomware group or a state-sponsored actor is targeting your industry is different from knowing that they're targeting your organization specifically. And absent specific information about threats to your organization, threat intelligence feeds can simply add more noise to an already noisy sock. A better approach would be what our next guest calls threat reconnaissance, the application of threat intelligence to find and neutralize threats targeting your organization. But how do you move from simply boning up on your threat intelligence to conducting threat reconnaissance? David Monnier is the CIO and chief evangelist at the firm Team Cymru. He joined us in the Security Ledger studios to talk about it. To start off, I asked David to tell us a little bit about himself and also about Team Cymru. We are here today speaking with uh, David Monnier, who is the chief information officer and uh, chief evangelist at Team Cymru. And David, you've written for us at Security Ledger before, but I think it's the first time that we've had you on the podcast. So welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us, Paul. It's great to have you. So I guess first place to start off, Dave, for our listeners is maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and the role that you play at Team Cymru. And for listeners who aren't familiar with Team Cymru, tell us what they do. Sure. Absolutely. Team Cymru, we are uh, an intelligence provider. Uh, That's our primary focus, uh, largely around uh, threat intelligence specifically. Um, We do a lot of uh, B2B enrichment. uh, So we provide a lot of the intelligence insights uh, that go into security products uh, in the world, whether it be your firewall needing to know what to lock or whether it be your antivirus needing to know what files are malicious, those types of things. In addition to that, we make our insights directly available to threat hunters, allowing people to do 
what we call threat hunting or, or threat reconnaissance. And it allows our partners to create what you would call a proactive threat intelligence, helping us to get over the hurdle of you're waiting for your threat intelligence provider to collect information and feed it back to you through their tip, something like that. All of that takes time. It's also, frankly, entirely too generically co collected to be super important to you. Like a hotel chain doesn't have the same adversaries pursuing it uh, as someone at home, nor as, say, a defense contractor. They all have different adversaries, and really you need to have in intelligence that's catered to the theater of, of action that you're subject to. So we focus on that. How I got to Team Cymru, I I was a non-commissioned officer in the U.S. Marine Corps. After that, I got out and caught the, I guess you could call it the beginning of the internet boom, and discovered that I had a natural aptitude for how computers worked, not mm -hmm. just mechanically, but by the code level, as well as the network level. So I was a natural hacker, if you will, entirely self-taught. Self I've taught some collegiate classes, but I've never attended many. I, I don't know if that's good or bad. It helps me with communicating for Probably sure. Probably good. I, yeah. It's, well, I, I communicate always in layman terms because I don't know the fancier words typically, but that's helpful. Uh, but then from there, uh, I went to work at Indiana University, uh, primarily as a Unix uh, specialist uh, and largely in high-performance computing space, uh, originally doing uh, what you could think of as uh, multi-body um, uh, experiments around uh, gravity and astrophysics, things like that. We were I was part of a team that processed that type of data. Uh, but then we moved into biosciences because it's a very similar problem where I helped build systems that was do that were doing things like protein folding and things like that, looking for genomics tie-ins like this, a computational sure. very similar. But then we had a breach of a international grid system that we were part of. And I was one of the few people in the room that kind of understood what criminal motives were and how bad actors, what motivates them and why they do things, and then how they act when they get into a system. So it turned out I had a natural aptitude, not just for computer systems, but also how people misuse them. So I transitioned from being doing Unix administration into doing security engineering and security architecting. From there, I left to start the research and education networking ISAC, which is information sharing community collaboration amongst higher education in, in North America. Yeah. I helped start that organization, build its trust community and information sharing platforms that were there. Along the way, I met Team Cymru's founder, Rabbi Rob Thomas, who he invited me to join Team Cymru about 16, almost yeah, 16 years ago, I guess now. And at Team Cymru, I've held a number of roles, both technical roles, as well as leadership roles, managing both our operations and engineering teams, networking teams, security teams, but also uh, oversaw our intelligence practice. Presently, I oversee as CIO, I oversee all of those technical operations, but then as chief evangelist, I also oversee our intelligence research teams where we do uh, a lot of work highlighting and illuminating the activities of various miscreant teams and operations around the world, most of which you can see our information published either on Twitter or on our website. We do regular intelligence information sharing components there, typically with all the things you need, IOCs, technical backgrounds, things like that. Our forte though really comes down to applying what we call our product suites are what's called pure signal. So think in the signal intelligence sense, and we help people, we apply network metadata to help people understand what bad guys are doing, who they're doing it to, how they did it, and how you can keep them from doing it to you. So you've been at Team Cymru for you know, 15, 16 years, long time, and, and obviously in cybersecurity well before that. Really interested in your thoughts 
on how you how you've seen the space change and the sort of threat landscape change. We're speaking today. We just heard this week uh, Kevin Mitnick passed away uh, uh, earlier this week. Uh, a prominent figure in the early days of hacking, going back to the kind of phone freaking days and stuff like that. It mm-hmm. makes me mindful of how much the industry has evolved and changed in that time period. Uh, Interesting your thoughts. So a lot has changed in the industry and a lot of it comes down to some societal changes. I, I would pin much of it on that because technology uh, changes no matter what, right? We have Moore's law that says CPUs double in speed every 18 uh, months and we have all these other various factors. But one of the things that I think has really changed the security community or security industry as a whole, or the security landscape, let's even draw it back a, a notch, but the security landscape, landscape, a big part of what drove or has driven change is, frankly, the monetization of miscreant behaviors. You mentioned Kevin Mitnick. He was absolutely probably one of the greatest social engineers to ever be. We should probably all be thankful that he took a technical route and didn't start a Ponzi scheme or something like that, or he probably would have done amazing at that, probably could have made off look like an amateur in that regard. But in that time, when all of that was going on, he he gained access to various national laboratories. Uh, he had direct access, believed to have had direct access to Bell Labs and the Berkeley distribution. That was, and if you're not familiar with Unix, there are two kind of family trees to Unix, the AT&T family tree, and then also the Berkeley side of the family tree. And he basically had access to both of those. And what he didn't do was go out and try to sell them. And that stayed to be the ethos for the most part. I know there are instances in what I would call corner case examples of early hackers or whatnot going out and rigging radio call-in shows and so that they won every prize. And there's all of these examples, but they weren't the norm. But somewhere along the way, things changed significantly and miscreants figured out that they could monetize miscreancy. And that is a very powerful driver. In pursuit of money is the same reason people do all kinds of unpleasant occupations, right? The, the guy cleaning out septic tanks in the countryside has probably one of the most terrible jobs ever, right? But he needs money. They have what's, no one really loves to be a septic tank engineer, I would imagine. So, but similarly, having that driver, there were people who figured out that, well, I, the country I'm in, maybe it's a former Soviet state, maybe it's some part of Africa, the famous Nigerian email scams and all this stuff. Those folks figured out that you could make money doing miscreant activities, right? And and that drive, that economic driver has largely, in my opinion, shaped the adversarial motivation, shifted it from, hey, let's learn something or, hey, let's do something no one else can do, which there was a lot of bravado in early miscreant activities. Like they would come in and deface the FBI's website just to show that they could do it. But mm-hmm. nowadays, I would imagine if somebody gained access to their network, it would be more to, to find out who all the confidential informants are in the world and try to sell that information to the people who would pay for it. So that kind of shift where hacking, let's just call it miscreancy, when it became profitable, that's really what I would say was the apex moment of where things changed drastically. That motivation, the details of that motivation spread. The industry at the time 
blaster, sasser worms, things like that came about probably in the first five or seven years or so that I was involved in the industry. But those that malware did nothing. Conficker did nothing. All it did was yeah. propagate and cause network disruptions. But today, if the same type of vulnerability were to be found in, let's say, the global user base at large of the internet, you can rest assured that would not be done the way that it was done. The, I, the right. super worm days are over because it's just entirely too profitable to waste the capability like that. Given that, I would say that's the number one thing that's changed. Technology changing, I don't attribute it necessarily to the security industry driving that change. I would largely argue that technology is on a momentum of its own and the application of that uh, of those uh, new things just happens to be in the security space, right? They're also getting applied in other non-security applications. But sure. the one thing that certainly has changed is the motivation space. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting. When I when I started the cybersecurity beat was in September of 2002. And within about four or five months, four months of starting, it was so big, Blaster, SQL Slammer, right? And they all just rolled out one after the other. And like you said, back then, you didn't really talk so much about cybercrime. There wasn't this notion of cyber criminal groups. These were all kind of status malware. And it was who can span the globe quickly enough, who can compromise the most networks, who can generate the most disruption. But that was about it. It was just a demonstration of ability rather than a targeted attack with a monetary you know, gain at the end of it. Sure. Yeah. As you described, Team Cymru is in the threat intelligence space. One of the things you are talking about is this sort of migration or evolution, maybe is a better word, from threat intelligence to threat reconnaissance, right? And getting organizations to look more at it in a more holistic way at identifying threats. Could you talk about that? And what what's behind that? So what is threat reconnaissance as, a, as opposed to threat intelligence? Yeah, sure. I touched on it briefly in my intro, but there is, there is a, there is a difference between receiving static intelligence versus curated intelligence versus proactive dynamic intelligence, right? Static intelligence is here's a list of every bad IP that we've seen on the internet, or here's a list of every bad hash that's been found on the internet. And that's not useless. That's interesting, right? It takes time and whatnot to, to generate that insight. And But uh, it takes resources to apply static threat intelligence. And your routers, your policy devices on your network, for example, which, let's use that, uh, they have a finite resource in them. They have only so much memory. Therefore, only so many lines of policy can exist to be applied at a certain time, right? The evolution shifted from tell every router about every bad thing there was to, to the threat intelligence community, ourselves included, started to categorize the threats. So like he, these are specifically DDoS bots. These are specifically command and control servers. These are specifically phishing sites. These are, and we started to get into this kind of what's called categorization for lack of a better word. And those categories are applicable depending on whether your business is in the healthcare industry, you're going to be concerned about certain things that are different than, for example, a financial company that has their own concerns, right? So that kind of middle stage of what I would call curated uh, in threat intelligence, where people did their best to identify, hey, uh, these are the general threat types that you should concern yourself with. And that's 
useful because it does allow the application, better application of the finite resources that are your controls, whether they be firewalls or routers or group policy objects uh, on a desktop. You can push out whitelisting and blacklisting uh, policy for execution in, in, on as a group policy or AV, th these types of things. So it is helpful uh, in making better use of those things, but it's still largely antiquated in the sense that you don't actually know that the threat intelligence you're receiving is applicable to the adversaries that are looking for you or that are looking to be a nuisance to you. But what you can do is with enough external visibility and enough external insight, you can actually take, let's say, the list of IPs that you see probing your network or the domains and URLs that you see people sending phishing attempts or spear phishing attempts to your staff at your company. Wouldn't it be great to be able to say, hey, we know for sure that this adversary is attempting to target specifically us? right? Wouldn't it be great to be able to take that insight and then illuminate that infrastructure? See, maybe you see those IPs are all talking to another same IP. Now you start to see, okay, this must be the command and control infrastructure that's managing this adversary. And then maybe be able to go so far as to see who's talking to the command and control server that may say if all of the bots are checking into something via using HTTP, maybe TCP port 80 or TCP port 443, you can see all that. But there's another IP in there that's using SSH. This person using SSH is likely the person administering that command and control server. And wouldn't it be great to be able to pivot off of that person and see what other infrastructure are they SSH'd into and take those IPs and then proactively block it. And now you're getting into threat reconnaissance, right? You're observing the adversary who is conducting operations against yourself or perhaps against your sector, your vertical, whatever, whatever their specialty is, right? Whoever that they're targeting. And that type of insight allows you to create what you could think of as bespoke intelligence, specifically for for you and enabling your threat hunters and you would know with confidence them we're doing everything we can to actually be in front of the adversary so we're like we're seeing them stand up new infrastructure and we're blocking that new infrastructure before it's even live and be able to use to deploy it against us and then again the ability to have the context around the attackers is priceless as well so imagine knowing the difference on friday if your sock is able to tell the difference between just general noise so something that's just maybe probing the entire internet or something that's probing every com company that's similar to you in an industry or probing only you. Those types of contexts, that's the difference between, okay, I can revisit this on Monday. No, I need to put a team together because we have a determined adversary that's trying to get into us right now and we need to address this immediately. And that type of context saves you time. It removes what I to describe as the fog of war, which is where most problems problems happen in the decision-making tree is under duress, right? So if you're not clear-headed, you can make bad decisions. And I would argue without context, you couldn't possibly be clear-headed. You may be calm, but you don't have context. So there is that fog. So that type of clarity that you also get with doing threat reconnaissance is, like I said, I would argue is invaluable. So what's in the threat reconnaissance tool belt? Obviously, companies have invested a lot of you know money in various cybersecurity point products or platforms, SIM and endpoint detection and response, and you name it. What, 
when we talk about threat reconnaissance, is it really just a new way to use the data from the tools you've already gotten, or is there are there new capabilities that you need? No, it it inherently needs external data. Threat hunting, based on your own telemetry, uh, is limited to exactly that, right? So until you uh, actually have made contact with the adversary, uh, you don't have any insights, right? If, if the only sensor that you have is your own network edge uh, or your own you know, systems, you're already engaged uh, with the adversary in order to earn, learn insights from that behavior. So what threat reconnaissance does is actually borrows on collective uh, insights. So in our case, uh, we uh, have uh, sensors and uh, partnerships with people around the world. We collect double-digit petabytes of insights every day, both from network metadata, but also things like passive DNS information, malware hashes, all kinds of external visibility. And what threat reconnaissance the difference between threat hunting and threat reconnaissance, right? Threat hunting, you're limited by your own capabilities, your own devices that you already own. And threat reconnaissance is you're borrowing on external visibility. So not not data you produced yourself, but that was produced somewhere else in the internet. And you leverage that visibility. You could think of it like all of the doorbell camera systems. Wouldn't it be great to be able to borrow on the insights learned from the house at the end of the street, at one end of the street, so you could prepare on your end of the street before the people came down the road and vice versa. And that's the biggest difference right there. I think you just thought up an idea for a new company, David. (laughs) Uh, No, no, that that company actually exists. There's a couple different startups right now that are doing collected and AI driven where you can lend your camera footage to a collective and AI then uh, ties these things together. Very Um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Personally, I wouldn't tie into that just because the camera... But if it were just some other telemetry, I wouldn't have a problem with it. But in the case of cameras and AI, I'm I'm not. It it starts tilting towards bad outcomes. Some kind of Orwellian. Orwellian, yeah, yeah, authoritarian type of surveillance. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, And we obviously, we see authoritarian governments around the world doing this very thing, right? Absolutely. One of the challenges right now in the information security space, it's always been a challenge, is that it is a space that's populated by... a lot of smaller companies and a lot of kind of point products and you know, products are evolved to address new needs because the bad guys keep doing stuff differently and discovering new methodologies and approaches and then there's a response. But from the defender's standpoint, that's complicated because you end up with a lot of kind of siloed technologies and that you need to integrate. You've talked about this in the context of threat hunting and, and threat reconnaissance, that one of the challenges is integrating uh, these capabilities across different platforms. Is that problem getting, in, as you see it, getting any better? Are we, are we getting any better at, at tying together some of these uh, security tools and capabilities? Or is, is that still a big problem that organizations are struggling with? I think it is still a problem in the sense that people's workforce Flows are still anchored onto antiquated methodologies to where they haven't looked at their workflow as a whole as far as are, should, is this the way we should still be doing it? Uh, typically, SecOps security operations is seen as a cost center. So once you make the big, uh, big expensive push to get started, you don't usually get very friendly faces when you go and tell your board that you need to redo the wheel every five years or things like that. So there are 
are unfortunately a lot of antiquated workflows that exist out there because the starting framework is antiquated itself. But that aside, I would argue that it is getting technically more feasible and way easier because we are at least presently, we are, I would say, I won't call it the golden age, but we're certainly living a brighter age of what I would describe as API as a uh, necessary feature. So most, most policy devices these days uh, are open to integrations. They have uh, remote configuration and remote policy uh, application is in most everybody's policy devices. But and most management systems, whether they be a TIP or a SIM or something like that, they typically have the ability to leverage those APIs. So those things are largely available. But like I said, in my opinion, one of the things holding it back is at the business level adoption, because if your cost center is going to cost you again, it's a hard sell. And until something bad happens to your neighbor, most people aren't looking to go tear down their fence and build a new fence, but not until you see that somebody bested your neighbor's fence. And then you're like, I don't want it to do to our fence. So let's go replace the fence. That's how the board typically sees what is the, I guess, for lack of a better, let's say that the migration from OPEX to CAPEX, right? That's how they see security operations. Operations are a cost center that people like to say, okay, we did it once. We've checked the box. We've met our regulatory needs, or we've got our ISO certification or our NIST certification, or we, we've got our certification. And then they don't really want to go back and touch it again. And so as technology, technologies move. And now, like I said, everybody has the ability to tie things to a single pane of glass. Unfortunately, it's hard to go back. What if the framework you were using to begin with didn't have windows at all? Mm -hmm. What if you couldn't tie another view into this thing anyway, because it simply just doesn't work that way. And that's what I have seen is holding us, for lack of a better word, I'll say holding us back in this regard, is that a lot of the first people who did great, amazing, groundbreaking shifts to accept that security operations was a necessary part of business, many of those giant companies made what's the cost-effective commitment to this, and then now are still sticking to it. So I have been to really big companies, think Fortune 100 size. I've been in these companies and discovered that they're still using 10-year-old, 8-year-old methods methodologies to manage their infrastructure. And you couldn't tie an AP and API into it if you wanted to, or if it, you did want to, it's a really long involved software development process. Mm -hmm. To that point, what are the um, KPIs, if you will, the key performance indicators or measurements that organizations can use or look to know if their um, threat hunting, threat reconnaissance capabilities and programs are actually paying dividends or actually working for them? Yeah. Um, well, Obviously not getting hacked. That, that's one. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a trick, right? Because it's you're trying to measure a zero, right? If you don't get compromised, how do you demonstrate that? Typically, I tell people the the whole the, or the grail, let's call it the holy grail of security operations is detection and awareness. It's not actually mitigation. It's not actually remediation. It's detection and awareness because without those, you can't do any of the other two. So I am a believer that if you can't detect it, that then you can't do anything about it. So I often encourage people to move to KPIs in the sense of how much, how many events are you able to process? 
So if you have an enterprise where presently all you're able to do is look at your blocked firewall, uh, the, the block records from your firewall to see what your firewall has denied, uh, but you're not able to look at everything that was allowed to go pass through. If you can move from doing able to do monitoring where only negative policy events are monitored and then move to, well, every packet that traverses our network is monitored, I would say that's a significant KPI. If you have only your authentication denial, let's say failed authentication logs being processed at a system level, and that's your starting point, if you're able to move that to where you can, for example, log every execution, every process execution on a system, then that's a KPI you should work towards. If you can produce those logs, but not process them all, maybe you're only able to process half of them in a day. So now you're getting down to selecting what are the most business critical systems, but then you invest and are able to look at, okay, now every endpoint in the network, we're going to review all of their logs at this level. That's a KPI you should be looking to. The biggest KPI driver is, is ask yourself, what's the most amount of intelligence I could pull off of my enterprise itself down to, like I said, each individual process, execution, every single packet, every, every facet of information that you can produce. Pick the most important systems if that number is not 100%, and then work towards getting to 100%. Work to drive towards total information awareness. So that way, when you have a breach, when you have a security event, you might be in a search situation where you say, you know what? We don't know what happened. We don't know how it was done. We don't know what this is, but here it is. Now we have the thing that we can go back and apply forensic methodologies to try to understand what actually was this. If you don't have in-house expertise, so what? You at least captured the event at an atomic level and then can review it with expertise uh, as time permits and things like that. I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you about artificial intelligence, <laughs> AI technology. Many applications in the information security space are already being used heavily but in a particular area that you're looking at, threat hunting, threat reconnaissance, talk just a little bit about the impact of artificial intelligence, some of the tremendous advancements we've seen both in you know, generative AI and other types, and how you see that changing the landscape in the years ahead on both the attack and the defense side. Yeah, sure. On the attack side, we're certainly seeing in particular things like large language models being employed to create more believable delivery mechanisms for malware, right? You can take you can take, for example, you could take a hundred press releases written by the same author, put them into a large language model and say, using these source materials, write for me another press release that sounds like it came from this person. You can do the same thing with emails. If you get access to somebody's email, you can teach an LLM to author a new message that is identical in the writing style that the person would have generated. So we've definitely seen the attackers make use of this stuff already, but largely only in the LLM space. Face. Generative AI, though, on, on the other side, I am a fan of the idea that you can feed more information to AI than a human would ever tolerate being exposed to, for starters, and actually get results out of it because AI doesn't get tired, AI doesn't get sick, AI doesn't get bored with the topic, and you can use it to identify, in particular, anomalous activities like slow and low exfiltration that really good nation state uh, folks are able to employ. I don't know if you've seen any of the recent toolkits that are being discovered in the wild where 
Uh, the adversaries are using uh, a type of what's uh, often referred to as port knocking, where you have to send a specific packet sequence to a specific service or port. And they're even now incorporating specific crypt uh, cryptographic methods to where uh, backdoors basically wake up if they receive the right sequence of magic packets. That would be very hard for a human being to spot with just their eyes. Most of the research that we're seeing right now is presently happening because people are doing memory forensics on mm -hmm. combat systems or are uh, stumbling across uh, the toolkits, the implant itself, and then reversing it from there. And that's how they're discovering these. But I believe that generative AI could actually allow you to look at patterns in large data sets like network telemetry, flow data, IP fixed data, something like that, where you could then, uh, an AI-driven system could actually see those, for lack of a better word, see them, but could actually assemble those patterns and determine, hey, this is something that we should probably do something about. Now, one thing that AI will never be able to do, though, is determine what is the actual value to your business. And it's important for security practitioners to keep in mind is that without the business, they don't need the security. So no offense to, hey, this thing has to be absolutely secure. That's nice, but you have to be in business to have something to secure. So business intelligence is one of the, in my opinion, larger missing pieces. CISOs often get it, but they have a very hard time articulating it down into the operational layer for people to understand, why aren't we patching? Oh, these people are just idiots or are lazy. That's often what you'll hear. But no, it's because this system can't be interrupted because it's core to the business. And then we, we're not making money. So only humans, I predict, the foreseeable future will be able to bring in those types of insights to know why a system is important to the business. Because it's very hard. It would be very hard to teach AI why your business was important to you in the first place. It would be very hard to articulate it. It comes down to largely gut feelings. It comes down to things like pride that an AI just can't possess. It comes down to things like motivations to cure an illness. There's pharmaceutical researchers out there that have started their own startup. They're in pursuit of a specific cure to something. And that motivation might be because they had a nephew or a, a child die or a parent die of that illness. You can never teach AI that motivation. Uh, so for them to understand the business value uh, for AI, I just don't see that as it's ever going to happen. Uh, hmm. The other thing that I will tell you, and for anybody, any of your listeners out there that are considering AI components into their security product, is ask to see the AI. Ask to see, hey, you've put these two letters on, on your product claiming to have AI. Tell me more about it. Is it generative? Is it in-house? If it's in-house, show me your GPU farm. Show me your massive parallelized processing capability. Because if they can't do that, then that's not what they're doing. Because AI from a computational uh, aspect is like a supercomputer. It requires a great deal of resources. And if they can't do that, ask to see their bill for whoever's CPU, GPU farm that they're making use of via API calls, ask to see that. Prove it to me that you're actually using AI. David, uh, you're not suggesting that there might be cybersecurity companies out there saying they're doing AI when they're not really doing AI, are you? I would hate to upset anybody <laughs> with such a claim. That is shocking. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But no, ask to see it. That's because so few people truly understand these technologies. Yeah. I understand. I come from a high performance computing background. So maybe I'm uniquely skeptical in this way or uniquely yeah. cynical, let's say. But but they're not they're not questions to gloss over. They're just not. And in particular, press people to tell you why what they have is AI and not just machine learning. Ask them to answer that. And if you're talking to an account exec somewhere, if it's an AE who's uh, trying to push the deal, 
ask to talk directly to the solutions engineer. Bring me in your CTO because I want to have a deep dive, technical deep dive. Bring your CISO, bring some of your top nerds and audition these people like it's America's Got Talent. Don't take it as this kind of blanket assertion of, well, we use AI. Really, I'm trying to understand what they're using and how they're using it. There's also a very long and not very proud tradition in the information security industry, right, of jumping on trends. And we've all seen this in RSA or Black Hat, whatever the technology or approach du jour is, everybody kind of starts to gravitate towards that regardless of what Absolutely. they really do. I, I'm a little sad that zero trust didn't uh, stay around longer as a philosophy. I'm sad to see that it got eclipsed by AI. Uh, mm. I would argue zero trust uh, as a philosophy, again, not as a technology, but as a philosophy, I would argue that goes back to enabling what I still argue is the most important factor, which is detection and zero trust. If you operate with a philosophy of zero trust, it facilitates or necessitates, I should say, that you have total information awareness because mm -hmm. that's how you establish violators of the trust. That as a philosophy is something that I've used for 25, 30 years, long before it had long before it had a, a cool name like Zero Trust. But I've employed that as a blue team engineer uh, for more than 20 something years. And I was really happy to see that it had gotten like a buzzword name. I was glad to see that was happening. I'm a little bit, you know, not disappointed, but it is unfortunate that AI has pushed that out of the way. And we went from having something that I don't disagree was super buzzworded and Everybody was very much hyped up on the zero trust concept, but so there was plenty of snake oil there. Don't get me wrong, but I'm disappointed to see that something that was as fruitful as a sound engineering concept as zero trust has now been largely usurped by, but frankly, the woo-woo of AI. Yeah. David, is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have or anything you wanted to say I, I didn't give you a chance to say? I would encourage your listeners in particular, if they're in security leadership or aspiring to be in security leadership, that they not be disheartened, that they understand understand that business decisions don't always make sense. Do, do go in and don't try to scare people. Go in and try to articulate the threat as best as you can. Uh, and if they don't buy into it, then try to re-articulate it. Uh, draw on a lot of, of analogies, uh, but keep your eyes on the prize. Uh, you know, stay motivated to convince people. Uh, don't be motivated wholly on your ability to uh, em uh, employ new technologies or employ new methods to do things. Think of it where the goal is to get everybody bought into the idea that security is important and don't be disheartened if specific projects don't get approved. Don't be disheartened by that. It's uh, we, We're living in a technically driven world where if you walk down the street and ask most people, how does it work? They couldn't even begin to answer it to you. Even security leadership, there are people out there who couldn't tell you how a PKI works, but yet they're responsible for ensuring it's there. You yeah. couldn't, there's plenty of CEOs out there who couldn't tell you how email works. If you ask them to describe how email works, they would use words like click and open and things like that. My advice would be for everybody out there is to keep in mind that you're pushing uphill, but the thing you're pushing is not buy-in to your idea. It's buy-in to the language you're speaking to begin with. So don't get disheartened if people don't approve your specific idea, that likely means you need to step back and get them bought into your philosophy first. That said, good luck, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so David Monnier of, of Team Cymru, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Paul.